I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I had fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 71 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. My name is Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist and a filmmaker curious about Africa's killers, criminals and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss crime on the continent is Jared Labaskachny, the former cop and current head of an LNS threat management who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases. And here's the profiler. Please visit our YouTube page and do subscribe. Simply search Profiler Africa. And, uh, you know, we're available on all your favorite uh, streaming platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Do listen and do share. Um, we are going to be um, our big, big push is to is consistency. So we're going to be dropping new episodes every week now um, uh, uh, because that's what we uh, want to do and that's what we need to do. And we feel terrible that we haven't been doing it up to now. Anyway, um, Gerard, how do you feel about the fact that um, we started off with 57 murders a day on the podcast and now we're up to 71 murders a day in South Africa? Well, obviously, it's not good. I mean, 57, 58 was already a tragic in terms of the statistics, the number per 100,000. Um, and it's, you know, gone up significantly to, you know, into the 70s. So I think essentially it shows that, you know, we're not successfully combating this particular type of crime. So whenever a crime starts to flourish, very often a large reason why is because law enforcement is not capable at combating it effectively, letting people know that if you do this, you're probably going to sit for a long time in jail, that's pretty good deterrence for a lot of people to not commit crime. Knowledge is power, and hopefully, here with the podcast, we can keep to keep keep informing you as to kind of what some of the um, ins and outs are of the uh, justice system in South Africa and where some of the strengths and weaknesses are. It is a shame to see those statistics going in a direction that um, that is not preferable. Um, let's go back to 2013, Gerard. My previous business partner. And may he rest in peace, because unfortunately we lost him to COVID. Um, but he was a member of the Susulu family. And uh, it meant that when we did work um, shooting stuff, we would often, um, you know, shoot around uh, uh, official things, you know. We'd shoot official things. Now, when um, Madiba passed away in 2013, I had the opportunity to, to film behind the scenes um, at Mandela's house while you know, when the kind of when all the mourners were coming through, etc. And then we went and we filmed at um, his funeral, which took place at F&B Stadium. Now, I always bring this up because, um, Gerard, what happened on that day was, okay, I woke up in the morning, I was put in a car, and I um, was kind of bypassed all of the security at F&B Stadium, okay? I was never once, this is my point, basically. I got in a car, we, we drove a van, full of gear it was camera gear okay um lights camera action at no point were we checked by security at all okay i drove with a with a police escort from randberg through to fnb stadium ushered right through into the underground parking at fnb stadium we parked maybe 30 meters away from where um Barack Obama at the, was the president at the time, where his famous um, limousines the were beast. parked. The, the beasts, beast is what it's known. The yeah. beasts, there were a number of them. Three of them in a line, in fact. Um, and we got, I got to take a photo standing right in front of it. And um, then I was standing in the reception area to, uh, to, to F&B Stadium. And can I tell you, within the space of about 10 minutes... Everyone, the, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, the Prime Minister of um, the, the, the Barack and Michelle came wandering past. We had Rob Mugabe was there. We had Angela Merkel was there. All in one room, okay? And I was within touching distance of all of these world leaders at some point within this period, okay, for the funeral. And can I tell you, I did not get security checked once. We could sure. have driven a van full of whatever 
into the F&B stadium that day. I could have been armed to the teeth, Gerard. Mm. Okay? I would have been able to take, I could have taken out, okay, a very large chunk of some of the world's most important leaders. I shouldn't be saying this on a podcast. I'm not saying I want to. I'm not saying I would plan to or I ever thought I was going to. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because today we're discussing a dude. Had he been in my situation on that day, it would have been bad. Am I correct to say that? It would have been bad. Yes. Start us off. Uh, yes. Tell us where yes does the story Yes and no, but I don't start? want to give too much away. Um, so, yeah, essentially the, the backstory to this particular case, uh, I was still in the police, it's 2013, um, and he, Barack Obama came to South Africa twice in 2013. June, July, he was doing a sort of a whistle-stop tour through various countries throughout Africa. He went to Senegal, Pretoria, Johannesburg, Cape Town, and Tanzania um, for just literally from the 28th of June to the 1st of July, so literally like three days in and out. I mean, these, these things are very quick, very well planned, etc. And around that time, on the 17th of July, um, and, and, and the American embassy gets an email from a man from the little town of Batuli in the Free State. Um, and this is, again, think about it, it's 16 days after that, ex- that, that Barack had left his African visit. Remember, his last stop wasn't in South Africa, it was Tanzania. Mm. And he sent a message saying to the consulate with his name, from his real email, with a contact number and everything, and his address, saying, when your president was in the country, I set out to kill him because I felt I could reasonably get away with it. I want to explain to you why I thought this was the case. Wild weather happened to disable the attack, and the moment passed. But the plan was going to be in three phases. First, kill him in the consulate in Cape Town on American ground, and to surrender to the Secret Service. Second, stand trial in the U.S. for his murder, and then to prove to an American court that American law effectively excuses the assassination of a president. And thirdly, I wanted to offer the American government an alternative to this toxic precedent that makes it possible to kill a president and to, ca- and to claim immunity. The American founding fathers, in other words, the George Washingtons, that crowd, mm-hmm. whom you venerate, terminated the lawful government of an American head of state, King George III. That was sort of the American Revolution. Uh, he may have been king of England, but he was primarily, as far as the American system was concerned, also the king of America. The founding fathers, by striking down their own king's president's presence in America, in direct breach of their oath of allegiance to him, effectively wrote into American law that it was permissible to rise up against the lawful American government and to strike it down. That's, in a nutshell, um, what he sent off to the consulate. Um, I mean, he's thought about this. Now. He's thought it through. Yeah. Like, like, a, like any good conspiracy theorist would. And then it kind of goes on to speak about, you know, you know, kings have no, you know, queen, kings have no, no, queens have no standing of authority, referring to that then Queen Elizabeth, who was in, uh, still alive at that point. And, um, you know, he could become king of America, um, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk about her crimes on another podcast because it's about time we get that stuff. We get a whole bunch of stuff back. We must talk about that. The, the looting of um, the, the historical looting of South Africa. Maybe there's a podcast in that anyway. Carry on. So, so what did this achieve? Well, someone from the consulate in Johannesburg did call him to say, hey, did you send this email? And he said, well, yes, I did. And they said, well, we'd like to speak to you. And, they said, and he said, well, I'd love to speak to you guys because I have a very important message I need to convey to you. And they said, well, can you come up to Johannesburg? And he said, well, no, I can't because I, I don't have money. I'm kind of stuck in Batuli. But, you know, you're more than welcome to come and visit me. And that was kind of the end of it. And he didn't hear from them again. You know, he was, said he was so surprised that he actually got a reaction that he, you know, he didn't even get the person's name. But that was kind of it for him. And then he thought, how do Americans take this kind of thing? Because I imagine this was not taken lightly and not, um, not uh, or, or would you imagine that they would get a bunch of this kind of stuff? Or what is the response from the local embassy when this kind of thing happens? Well, in terms of procedure, they're supposed to notify the police, which they did, crime intelligence, which they did, and then crime intelligence is supposed to look into this matter and investigate, which they didn't. Okay. But the American president daily gets threats, direct, indirect, on various social media platforms, emails sent directly to whatever. 
that the U.S. Secret Service, which is tasked with protecting the president, has one of the most sophisticated and advanced threat assessment, or they call it protective intelligence systems in the world. I and mean, if you go on YouTube and Google how to protect the American president, I mean, they will go, if he, they know he's going to, you know, uh, New York, they will, before he goes there, everything is calculated, worked out. Everybody who's ever made a threat against him who lives in New York, they literally place a guard, a, a Secret Service agent outside of their house. Mm-hmm. you know, to monitor them. They'll visit them and say in the next day or two, you know, you're not going to do anything. You're going to stay in your home. They have a massive protective system in place to prevent things happening. So this they would have looked at. But I don't think they would have. They would have looked at it and seen it as not being too serious. Also, at that point in time, he says, this is sent after he's gone back to the U.S. So for them, it would probably be more of an issue if Barack was coming back to, the, to South Africa again yeah. because this guy would be on the Secret Service's radar. Yes. So, of course, that immense system did not cover Paul and his film crew on the day of Nelson Mandela's funeral. Well, look, there were a few other things on that day, which we'll get to at the end of the presentation. Right. And that might explain why. Okay. So we jump forward to 8th of December, where he sends his second letter. We know on the 5th of December 2013, Nelson Mandela sadly passes away. They had scheduled his memorial service at the FNB Stadium in Soweto for the 10th of December. So technically it wasn't his funeral, it was a yes, memorial, memorial, and his funeral yes, was yes, going to yes, take place yes. in Kuno thereafter. But I mean, that stadium was full, and as you pointed out, I mean, world lead, I mean, I have a list here, 50 heads of state. We had Obama, obviously, Clinton, Bush, Jimmy Carter, David Cameron from the UK, Ban Ki-moon, I think he was the head of the UN at the time, Raul Castro, royalty yes. from the Netherlands, Spain, I mean, even the spy schools were there. So it was, I think, I don't think, Besides an actual gathering at the UN, which is only active world leaders. I mean, this had active and, you know, all past. I mean, it was really, if you wanted to do the world a lot of damage in one go. This, this was my point. <laughs> and I drove a quantum without getting checked by one security guard from Randburg straight into FNB Stadium. Absolutely. I'm not going to, I'm hopping on about this. I'm going to shut up. So this guy sends the next letter on the 8th of December. So remember, he passed away, Mandela, on the 5th. The memorial was to be on the 10th. He sends his letter on the 8th to, again, the consulate. Um, and essentially it says, allow me to present the scenario. A competent hunter like me can take off a man's head at 300 meters without a scope. A desperate man like me with a failing business has nothing to lose. No wife, no children, no prospects as a white man in a black controlled country. No money. A tactical man like me could believe he would get away with it by striking the president, not fleeing the scene, surrendering to the Secret Service face charges in the trial of the century, get a lawyer to represent me. And then he goes back to this issue of the, found, the founding fathers of the U.S., you know, violently killed off the lawful American government of King George at the time, in other words, a British monarch, by basically with the revolution kicking the Brits out. Um, and that sets a precedence that anybody who basically kills a president can then step in and say, hi, I'm in charge now, and this, you, you've set a legal precedence because you kicked out the British monarchy, so you've set the precedence that a violent revolution is acceptable in your system because that's how you came to form the modern American government, is by kicking out the previous lawful government, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, etc. And he says, my fee for helping you understand this would be you know, 100,000 US dollars payable by the 11th of December. And then again, he gave his name, his phone number, his address, his bank account details, um, etc. I trust that reason may prevail and tensions may be resolved without bloodshed. And then he gives his bank details. <laughs> yep. Okay. But he makes a date of when they have to pay this money the day after the funeral. And Barack Obama arrived and departed on the same day. So again, like the first one was intentionally sent 16 days after Barack went back. This had a date that actually you wouldn't be able to go ahead with killing him if they didn't pay, because that date would already be after. Yes. So he, and he did later admit he got the, the dates kind of wrong. Okay. Um, so where is Batuli? For those of you that don't know, as I said, it's kind of like if you're traveling down to Cape Town on the N1, it's just off the N1, probably, I don't know, 100 and something kilometers after you pass by Bloemfontein. So uh, I'd never been there before. There's not much there. It's surrounded by farm area. A lot know. of time for thinking in Batuli, clearly. Exactly. You know, sort of a quaint little tiny, tiny little town. Um, like even the petrol station is like sort of not paved. It's sort of dirt, you know, except where the actual pumps are. Um, it's a really one-house town. This is kind of a picture of Batuli when you look up the definition of one-house town in South Africa. 
Well, he was a milkman. So, I mean, they even still had a milkman. Yeah. So, I mean, he basically ran a little tiny shop where his dad ran it and he helped his dad. His dad was quite elderly. And they basically, you know, farmers would come and deliver milk in these, you know, big containers and they would, you know, go and deliver orders to guest houses. You could walk there with your little container and get some fresh milk. Okay. Um, so I wouldn't even call it a, a dairy. It was literally a milk shop. And who was our suspect? Because remember, we, we, this was not a whodunit. We knew from the start because he's given his details. And that often for me, when you have these bizarre statements, it's, it's kind of like it's usually the mentally ill people who do give their names and details because they don't realize that this what they're doing is really wrong. Um, so anyway, so who is our man? And our, our man was Sean Fruin. And this I can say this because it was the substance of a criminal case and his details are out there. And... Um, this case is also in my book in much more detail, and I did contact him beforehand to just tell him this is what I was doing, what's his thought on the matter, and he was okay with it. So Sean at the time was 47 years old, so he was, he was an older-ish guy. I mean, not that 47 is old, but he wasn't a young, young man. Never been married, South African citizen. You know, had completed high school, had previously for a, you know, a short stint been a journalist after he completed high school, but really couldn't cope with the pressures of life. And kind of whenever he would start to do well in his employment, kind of like, had a bit of a breakdown and, and withdrew. So essentially, he'd been staying in Batuli with his elderly father for, for countless years and really just running this little milk shop with his dad, looking after his dad. He was a very loyal son. He'd been in the army, as many you know white South African males had been in, back in the 80s, nothing particularly that he did at the, in the army. You know, uh, university for two weeks because it was too much pressure for him. No violent history, no substance history, um, and no previous treatment for any mental health issues. So really, an ordinary very plain ordinary guy even in his appearance looks not like almost I guess what you might be imagining in your head when you read these sort of ranting and raving um, letters and actually quite a nice guy to be honest with you when I finally got to meet him so I get called in because crimes against the state get asked to look into this and they weren't called in because of letter number two that had literally been a day or two before I go down to Batuli finally it had been passed on the first letter from July was what the police were reacting to. So it had literally taken the police Just five then. months to actually get their butts. Maybe because of the pending visit by Barack Obama that they thought, ooh, maybe we should go down and check this guy out. Mm. I don't know. But quite terrific that SAPS's response to this. You know, if anything, for, on a diplomatic level, you want to make it look like you're really... You know, cooperating. Cross your T's and dot you know, your I's with the any, any kind of little loopholes that could become yeah, so a problem. That, that for me was quite shocking. That they'd really done nothing. Yeah. In in five months, uh, until it was given to this detective from Crimes Against the State, who did a great job, and he's the one that sort of called me in. So I did get the opportunity to speak to Sean for about I think two hours, um, and he was very cooperative because he wanted people to come and speak to him. So this is one of those bizarre situations where the threat was not real. The threat was intended to get people's attention. And, and, I, and it'll become more clear in a moment when I go into it. So for years, since the 80s, he had had this sort of philosophical viewpoint that democracy is a weak form of government. That South Africa is in a crisis, remember this was 2013, under the ANC as it had been under the nationalist government. And he says the reason being is because a monarchy is the only successful form of government. And he said, look at all the examples of monarchies and they always work well. Uh, if you do that, you'll actually realize that they don't really work well. Yeah, until until, you, <laughs> until your head ends up on a spike yes. in the in the palace. The, you know, Saudi Arabia is a monarchy. Uh, a lot of historical governments have been monarchies, and really, no. But anyway, yeah, that, I that's mean, a, a big part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it does speak to maybe a more um, Caucasian version of reality in South Africa, because um, <clears throat> if you know, if you're of any, if you. If you're of any other <laughs> any other racial persuasion, then um, you know monarchy, colonialism, mm. imperialism. These are not things that you have a happy history with or Absolutely. a happy memory of.
So he felt, as I said, that the monarchy is the only good form of government. And that Queen Elizabeth, as you know, she just passed away, was removed as queen yep. because she had no legal standing to be queen. Then we could undo South Africa becoming its own independent country and go back, I suppose, essentially to be in a colony of of the of the monarchy okay and undo that contract of 1961 that he described it that led to the creation of the republic of south africa now his argument why the queen is not legitimate is that um the bible only speaks of kings and not queens which again i'm not the most religious person but i'm sure that's also not right and because there's no legal standing for queens to rule countries and the queen of england is the head of the english church she can't be which also means she can't be the queen then therefore we can get rid of her Prince Philip, at that point, remember this is 2013, would then become king, and he could undo anything that she ever did because she would have had no legitimacy. So that's his twisted philosophical argument that he's but been trying to convey to people. When it comes to conspiracies or what have you, or whatever you want to call this, though, the Bible is a kind of a, a go-to because it can it's, it's whatever you want it to be. And you select and cherry-pick phrases that suit you. Exactly. So then he said, but imagine the powerful powerhouse South Africa and the UK would be. But then he kind of said, there's a similar departure in, the, in, in America because like we said, you know, we could undo all of that and USA, UK, South Africa, one effective, I don't know what, consortium of countries, you know, under the control of the king. And I wouldn't that be amazing? Why wouldn't he look closer to home though? I mean, we got plenty kings, you know what I mean? What about a nice, what about a Zulu king? I mean, why can't he just be a little bit more patriotic? Yeah. So that was his... But, and he'd been trying to tell this to people for years. You know, he contacted the head of the Church of England. He sent them an email to their info at address. <laughs> you know, he contacted lawyer, well-known lawyers in America, sent them emails. And of course, like just literally nobody was responding to them because they all thought this guy's a bit kooky. Yes. To put it politely. And he was getting frustrated because he thought we could fix so many things. We could fix our country, the world. People are dying because the world's in a terrible state and the country's in a terrible state. So it almost felt it became his mission and his duty to try and save the lives of people in South Africa and other parts of the world because he had the solution, but nobody's listening to him. So if you think about that, where you can perhaps imagine his desperation in his mind that, but guys, there's a solution. Listen to me. And nobody is. So... How to get it? How do I get attention? Me, the little guy, the white guy, and a little torpy in South Africa is going to threaten exactly. the first black president of America's life. So he even did publish Again, books. Just if, feels so typical. If you go onto Amazon, you can actually find two books that he self-published. You can't get them anymore; they're not available. But okay. um, two books that he published about this whole issue. Cool. So he was trying through various, I guess you could say, socially acceptable avenues for years to get people to go, my goodness, my goodness, thank you for bringing this to our attention. We need to fix this loophole or we need to take advantage of this loophole. Mm. And um, I mean, he'd even started to email, because the Church of England, he even then, um, after Church of England ignored him, he, he, put, he contacted MI5, the British, the British Secret Service, and they, of course, didn't respond. Then he thought, okay, look, I have to get desperate now because desperate times, desperate measures, nobody's listening to me. I've been polite. I've been contacting all the people I think would have just sat up and said, wow, yes. So he decides, maybe if I threaten violence, people will pay attention. So he actually created a website uh, under, he said he, he made it under an obscure name and it's like the, the Mountbatten army, it's a guerrilla army. And he said, great, now we've got a fake army. We have to make some kind of a threat. It's a great, you know, under my guidance, you know, I give permission to kill all bishops um, under the, you know, my order, um, blah, 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 blah. And then he, then he contacted MI5 again and said, hey, guys, look at this really weird website. Maybe you should contact the person who wrote it. And they still didn't. And he thought, well, wow, what do I have to do? I'm threatening and nobody's even paying attention to me. And that's when he started, okay, I'm going to send more, you know, direct threats and now of course oh Barack Obama's coming to South Africa and he's getting the attention that he Sad, so yes. desired but sadly he's getting the wrong kind of attention because of course he's committing criminal acts exactly. he's, you could argue this is terrorism um, very serious criminal but he, he did and again method to his madness because he wanted someone to come and speak to him and well the police came down and me included in that along with my colleague Colonel DeLunga did go and interview him and we said to him, do you mind if we video record this? And he said, yes. 
I don't mind because I know you're going to give it to the Secret Service. And the Secret Service is going to show it to Barack Obama, which, of course, Barack Obama didn't even know about this threat and doesn't, will not ever know about 99.9% of the threats mm-hmm. that, because there are so many of them. Yeah. They're not going to bother him every day with wherever the president is with these notifications. Yes. But it did get to the Secret Service. So, you know, destructive logic in his madness, so to speak. Um, and I was very grateful. It's a fascinating video, and I, I use it for training of psychologists when, when, I, when it's appropriate to do so. Um, and he's very cooperative, but I said, I actually kind of like Sean. He's, 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 a, he's a nice guy, interesting. He's the kind of guy that if you were in a pub one night having a few beers and you started chatting to him and he told you this philosophy about, but you know, the Brits kicked, you know, the Americans kicked out the British government at the time in the 18, whenever it was, 1776, whenever it was. Doesn't that mean that it's okay to do that? Wouldn't that be a legal argument in court if you then decide to have a revolution against the government and say, sorry, we're now in charge. You guys did it before. You can't complain now. Well, you might go for a minute or two going, yeah, I wonder about that. I wonder how they closed that loophole. You know, and after a while, you might go, no, hang on a minute. This is a bit kooky. Well, exactly. I mean, this then speaks to the point that, yes, it can make for an inter- interesting bar conversation. And, yeah, you can kind of pontificate about what yeah. might or might not occur. But what's going on with this guy that he is... You know, what, what mentally there's obviously something yep. at play here. So, what, so, what, what is that? Yeah. And the thing is, you know, he's he's very well spoken. I mean, he was a for the short stint, he was a journalist. He's very well educated. You know, in that sense, he's he comes across as a very smart, and he is smart, educated person, which sometimes makes you look listen a bit longer than you would have if this person didn't sound so smart. So, well, absolutely. Sometimes just the ability to to present an argument whether what you're presenting is rational or is irrational kind of can come off as convincing. Um, There are a lot of people that are convinced by non-truth in the world that we live in now. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that especially in the media mix that we have today, you can kind of speak any non-fact into reality as long as, you know... Look at Donald Trump. He's he's very good at it. Exactly. It just (laughs) takes an audience. And and also look at how many even more weird conspiracy theories have been thrown about over the past two or three years in society about COVID, about this, about that. Absolutely. Does this sound more or less, I think it sounds a lot less weird than those conspiracy theories. Yeah. Um, so obviously as I get down, you know, get down then myself and Yanni interview him, I realize he has some mental health challenges, that this is delusional thinking. It's fixed false belief. You can't argue with it. It's been around for a long time. It's causing problems for him in his life. You know, you've been arrested by the cops. Um, so my recommendation was that this guy must should be sent off for mental observation in terms of the Criminal Procedure Act, um, which is ultimately where he went. Uh, and the investigating officer, um, Oklipis von Yerden, was very good. I mean, you could have been very hard, hard-handed and just treated this guy like a terrorist. Yeah. But he actually realized the guy has a problem. That's potentially why I called me myself down to come and get involved in the case and was very sort of gentle with him. And that's kind of like what you'd like to think when a law enforcement official deals with someone who might have some mental issues, that they, you know, they don't ridicule them, treat them as they would a normal criminal, that they treat them very decently. And he actually said, Sean, when I spoke to him at the end of December last year, I said, you know, he really is appreciative how, how Captain Van Heerden treated him, that he was very kind and decent. And that's that was nice to hear. So I kind of look at this case overall as a big success whereas other you know our other cases we've discussed someone's dead we can't that's not a success in any sense but we can maybe bring justice but this one in a way we prevented problems we helped someone it's kind of like a win-win that's why i like threat assessment because this is really what it's about yeah and i what i think what's nice about this case as well we often talk about murder and rape and what have you it's nice to get a sense of the kind of breadth of stuff that you've been involved with and you've had to deal with over the course of your career and i would almost say this is one of the changing cases for me about changing the direction of my career into the world of threat assessment is because I just felt so much more rewarded by the outcome is that nobody got hurt. We were able to pick up a guy who needed help. He got the help he needed. And when I checked in with him, as I said, December last year, which was years, how many, 10 years since this incident, things were going well in his life. Mm. So that was really kind of just, yeah, it just kind of made me feel positive about this kind of work. Yeah. Look, I mean, the whole concept of threat assessment is something which, you know, you just wish that it was more pervasive across all kind of um, law and law, yeah. law and disorder kind of problems that we have. Because if you think about the case we discussed last week, and you think about 
how much threat there was to assess Andrea in the Fenty, course yeah. of the build-up to that, to her murder, to Andrea's murder. Yeah, and murder. if that people had been looking at through their assessment eyes and just doing their job, that would have been told to differently. Well, if the police system had threat assessment kind of built yeah. into it. You know, it's not the Tom Cruise mm. future crime type concept, but it is that mm. thing of there are identifiers when it comes to, you know, there are things that you can identify mm. which... which predict potential future yep. problems and even in this case if the police had acted sooner sean wouldn't have got around to doing the second threat which got him again and just made his troubles a little bit more from a legal perspective and he could have gotten help sooner um so but but the question often people say to me but you know would this guy have done something mm. so this is where the threat assessment angle comes into yes. it because saying someone's mentally ill is part of threat and sort of a threat assessment which is a great next question would this guy have done anything no let me explain why <laughs> Firstly, we look at his ability to implement the plan. Was there the emotions behind the threat? And if I'm angry with you and I say, I'm going to murder you or whatever, my, my emotions are matching the verbal, and you know, oof, there's a potential that that could happen unless I cool down. Take away the emotion, I'm probably not going to go ahead with the action. He didn't have any issue with Barack Obama per se. He, didn't, he wasn't angry with Barack for his stance on Iraq or this or that or for fake promises that he says the person made that he didn't act upon. He had no emotional investment in Barack Obama. This threats were just a tool to try and get the attention of people to come listen to the message he had to say. And once they heard the message, he was convinced people were going to go, oh my goodness, thank you for bringing this message to our attention. We forgive you for the threats that you used to get our ear. But, you know, what your, your message actually, you've actually, you know, helped us prevent catastrophe taking place in our country because somebody else could have exploited this loophole or whatever the case may be. And that was his view that I would be forgiven once people heard what I was trying to say. They're just not hearing my message. They don't quite get it or that it's not getting to the right people. So maybe this is the way to get the, my true message about the monarchy, etc., to the right people. So there was not that emotional investment in the threat. Mm. Um, he didn't know Johannesburg nor Pretoria. And of course, the Barack Obama was up here in Johannesburg for the memorial. He had no verbalization of a plan of, of how to get to where Obama was supposed to be. I mean, the car that he had was dilapidated. It wouldn't even have made it as far as Bloemfontein. He didn't have money. I probably didn't even have the money for the petrol, let alone to buy a ticket. And then he had no support when he gets to Johannesburg, where to go. He hates crowds. That's why he lives in a tiny little town of Batuli, because he can't handle the pressure of the big city. He got the dates wrong of Obama's visit. His letter says, by the 11th, he must have paid me this money. He felt using money was also would be a, a, an enhancer to get people's attention. But Barack was in and out of the country on the 10th. So he, he didn't have the proper intelligence. You know, He said he thought for some reason that the, the memorial, this, and, and he thought, and he got the, the memorial and the funeral kind of mixed up. He had no, no indications he had done some searching to see anything about the visit, where exactly the routes, how would it happen. You know, sometimes you come across these things in the media. He had no special weapons training. He had, no, as I said, not the financial means. Um, you know, Joburg was 700 kilometers away from where he lived. The closest commercial airport was 185 kilometers in, in Bloemfontein. As I said, he doesn't like crowds. Um, even in terms of weapons, he didn't start to collect the, tool, the tools necessary, you know, to actually commit this act. And secondly, the FNB Stadium, borrowing the example you said, you know, to, to get in there and hide with a gun, well, I don't know, maybe it's easier than we thought it wouldn't have been. I could have had a trench coat on, <laughs> and I could have been, like I say, I could have had, I could have looked like I was in a Hollywood movie. You did go there with the police escort. Maybe that sort of perhaps, you know. Yeah, but, but they still, didn't but check. Still, they didn't check they our didn't bags. Check. They didn't have dogs come out. You know, I've been in these situations where, you know, I've shot at the president's house in Pretoria. Film, film, not shooting. Sorry, film. <laughs> I filmed at the president's house in Pretoria, and before we were allowed into the house, we had to lay out all our gear, and the dogs come and they sniff all the yep. stuff, and then. You know, to make sure that, I mean, they didn't find the weed either, but, <laughs> that, I mean, how, anyway, I'm good at hiding that. You can um, just delete that part. <laughs> Let's delete that part. So, and then, of course, weapons access. I mean, to do this, you need to have the tools. He had an old .22 rifle and an and a unlicensed .22 pistol that he inherited from his mother that was just never licensed into his name. So... I'm not saying a .22 isn't dangerous, but, uh, you know, trying to snipe someone from a faraway distance, not the best option. So... There was nothing that really... There was no threat. Essentially. You really, know, did, did he have a grievance with Barack Obama? Assessment. No. 
He didn't actually have a grievance about the system that he's referring to. He just said, this is a great system, but there's a potential loophole of that other people could exploit it and cause havoc. Yes. You know? Um, he had no actual violent per se ideation. He was expressing violence, but no backing that this is actually how I feel. He didn't do any research and planning for the visit, the target, etc. He didn't prepare travel arrangements, his vehicle, fill it up, get this, you know, nothing of that nature. He didn't try to go to the FNB stadium beforehand in the days before to try and see, get the lay of the land, you know, can I get over a fence maybe and into the access. Nothing that shows prepping. So, so what does this mean for what ultimately happens to him? So essentially, um, obviously he was initially charged because at that point the police can't not charge him. If there's going to be mental health issues, that has to be first investigated by yes. the relevant experts. So they did charge him for um, his threats he made. He was then sent off based on a recommendation by, from me that he goes to, uh, for in terms of the Criminal Procedure Act, to Bloemfontein to get an assessment. He was there, I think, for 30 days where they said he does have a diagnosis and that, um, I just want to get it to exactly, that he does have a delusional dis disorder, which is exactly what was my concerns based on what he was saying. Mm -hmm. And he then was there for, I think, about nine, ten months. And then he was released back into the care of his father. And as I said, then that's kind of, I didn't really hear about him. I mean, I had no reason. I'd left the police, you know, almost not too long after that. Um, and it was only really when I wanted to consider this as a chapter in my book that I then contacted him and, you know, as if things were actually going quite well with him. His father had passed away. Uh, he's still in Batuli, and he's kind of like, he says he kind of doesn't know why back then, all those years, this issue was so important to him. He says he hardly ever thinks about it nowadays. Um, he says he did feel that the mental health treatment really helped, and that's why he was quite happy that I would publish a chapter, because he said, as long as the message goes out there that getting help helps. Yes. Go to speak to people, listen to them, whether it be psych psychologists, psychiatrists, etc. He said then he's quite happy that you know the chapter goes out, and I sent it to him before I finished it, that he could just make sure it was a factually correct, and if there's any specific things that he didn't want me to to sort of put in the books, and he didn't. He just said, look, there's one thing I said somebody was his stepbrother, and actually it's his real brother, or vice versa. But he said the rest of it um, is fine. And interestingly, what I like about the present, I've got your presentation open that you do on this case. And then you have the, the image at the end of Barack Obama with the famous sign language. If we all remember back, yeah. there was a sign language interpreter standing uh, with Barack Obama who couldn't do sign language. What people may not realize is actually... He had a diagnosis, and this is again public information, so I'm not revealing confidential yes. stuff. He had a diagnosis of schizophrenia. He had been previously charged with murder and made, I think if I recall correctly, made a state's patient. Um, and of course, he couldn't do sign language. So within literally a meter of some of the world's leaders, you had a guy who had a ment severe mental health issue and a violence issue. Mm. And I asked the Secret Service when I said, but guys, you guys have this most amazing system set up. He says, how come that? And he said, the problem is they cannot vet if the other government is in charge of organizing sign language people, caterers, they have to assume that the, that, that country has done the proper vetting on those people. They can't vet the appointees of a different country. And hence, they couldn't vet the sign language um, interpreter to see and find out that he had actually this history. So, I mean, that's just a, a yeah. I mean, so, so on the South African side, that was just complete PR disaster, let alone yeah. potential, you know, harm to, I mean, imagine that. Imagine this guy. And he's actually said in one of his interviews, he did quite a few interviews after these, um, after this incident, where he said at that moment in time, I was having voices, I was very scared, I wasn't, well, that's not yeah. exactly what you don't want to be hearing when this person is standing right next to any, any anybody, let alone a world leader. Yeah. So, you know, you look here, but, you know, you, you don't, you know, you're looking in the wrong place. In a way, they were looking at Sean, who actually wasn't a danger. Yes. Whereas you're having a guy right there who was potentially a danger. Yeah. And only took them six months to get to that letter in the first place. Yeah. Um, There's actually quite a funny Jimmy Kimmel um, who did a, um, an excerpt on his show about this. And they actually brought in a real sign language interpreter to actually interpret what the guy is saying. And if you go and Google Jimmy Kimmel and sign language interpreter, you'll probably find it. Um, and it's, it's quite, I mean, this is gibberish, nonsensical. It's certainly interesting, though, that um, the American government is going to 
kind of just just assume that the proper security checks have been done by by the folks in the country that they're going into. I'm quite surprised that that's the case yeah. because, um, hey, I, I, you can imagine not having faith in some countries that you go into exactly. that are, where maybe uh, even. Yeah, I'm not saying South Africa's backward. I mean, we have a pretty good system, but it's there are certainly and, cracks. And you could argue, oh, but no, he died. That organizes clearly everything regarding Manila's death had been planned years before. Yes. Governments. I mean, it's not like, hey, guys, we've got to be in South Africa two days' time because Mandela passed away. Every government had worked on its contingency plan to prep for the day Mandela dies. Yes. The stadium was decided upon years ago so that when it happens, it's just a case of, right, implement plan Mandela. So it's not as if we suddenly, you know, suddenly scrambling to find interpreters and there wasn't time to bet. No, that's that's not an, uh, an explanation. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There certainly wasn't time, but I can I can pretty much guarantee you that um, there were definitely other places, other pe- other folks, non South Africa, that were more prepared for Mandela's death and funeral than than the South Africans were because I was around mm-hmm. the memorial. I went down to the Eastern Cape for the funeral. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as was as is pretty typical in these kinds of things, it, it, it was not a seamless bureaucracy that you were dealing with that was mm-hmm. easy to navigate as a media person. Um, it was kind of controlled chaos from what yep. I kind yep. of remember yep. it to be. Plan doesn't also mean the plan's gonna go down well on the day. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly, exactly. So that's this case. Have you had any other similar kinds of incidences in your in your career that where you've had people making threats that one would need to be worried about? Just to, you know, just in passing. How mm. in this so, in this day and age where it's some there's so much more access to media and to the means to be able to you know to say crazy shit mm. and to throw crazy conspiracies or plans out into the world you'd think that there were more and more of these types of cases absolutely i mean people you say you know you can be upset right now about something and it's very easy to fire off something on twitter email you have access to you know you can google someone quickly and find an email address at a work etc and fire off things on social media that in the you know 15 years ago by the time you manage to get the pen and paper out to write the little letter you want to send to someone and post it, you know, the, the emotion's gone and you're no longer angry. So it is easier, which means you do get a lot more threats. Um, but we still always say that each threat has to be assessed. You can't just assume. Yes. That one email you're seeing, you might not realize as part of 20 emails that have been sent to a few other people in the organization or hist- there's a long history. You're just seeing one out of 20. So we always say that each threat has to be investigated. So for sure, we've had other very worrying threats that are being sent by email or other communication styles that you do definitely get a lot more worried about. And of course, part of the threat assessment is trying to understand the person behind the threat, which if it's anonymous, you're limited to the what's contained in the threat. If you are, like in this case, able to find out something about that individual, you're able to give a far more informed understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone has said, oh, Paul, I'm gonna kill you because I don't like this documentary you made, um, Imagine that is coming from a person who has five previous convictions for assault. Mm. Then I'd say, well, I'd be a bit more concerned about that threat than if it was sent by another person who doesn't have the history of assault. Or the person lives in Canada. Yeah. You know, or the person is in a wheelchair. Yeah. So those same words can have a completely different meaning and threat level depending on those very same words coming from who. Yeah. And it's understanding the who which really puts you in a position to understand how worried we should we actually a be. A schizophrenic who's previously been charged with murder is not a guy that should be standing next to Barack Obama. True. So, yeah, if, this, if he had sent these emails, you know, then I would be where, where Where is Sean on his conspiracy now? So basically he doesn't, well, he said to me he doesn't ascribe to these beliefs anymore. Um, he's, he, just, he says if he reflects back, he can't understand why it was so 
much of an issue for him back then. But he says he doesn't think about it. It's not as he's not worried about it. Um, this is just like a non non issue for him anymore, which I suppose is great because that hopefully means that the treatment that he had and maybe is still receiving is is did what it's supposed to do, which was help ameliorate those those sort of delusional beliefs. Yeah, would would he be on on medication? Is a chance that he would have a kind of a what kind of treatment regime? It would be counselling with with meds potentially. Yeah, so or? definitely at the time he would have been given medication. Um, you know, now, I mean, I didn't want to go into that sure. question and ask no, him, no. but, you know, delusional, but, but delusions are just very difficult in general to get rid of, specifically paranoid ones. Mm. Uh, they often make people not very treatment compliant. He, I wouldn't say he was per se paranoid, so I think that's a great situation for him. Um, so it would have been medication definitely in the beginning, but, which, which could have been tapered off as they wanted to see how to see how he does, the thoughts have gone, you know, psychotherapy. I don't know where he is, how easy it is for him to access state-appointed psychologist. I don't think he would have the funds to access his own, and I don't even know if there is a psychologist in Batuli. Mm. So if not, it might still not be medication, or he might have been weaned off of it if the doctors were happy with his progress. And uh, the police's current kind of ability to identify and to deal with these kinds of threats? You know, the, the advantage in this particular case is that Captain von Heerden, who, I, who called us into this case, I'd, he actually used to work in the same building as me for most of my years in the police. So he knew exactly who we are, what we did. So we had been called in to quite a few of similar kind of cases that seemed to land on his table. And I think actually his supervisors gave him all these kind of cases. Although he, ha he says he hated these things. He doesn't like this psychology cock. He just likes a straightforward criminal. Mm -hmm. But he was very good with these <laughs> cases. So whether it's karma that brought him more or his supervisors that brought him more, um, he knew how to deal with them, and we'd worked on quite a number of cases where we had delusional people sending threats to do things, etc. prior to this one. So, again, like many things, it almost was, who do you know? Yeah. Whereas, if this landed on a different detective's table, and he didn't even know that my unit, my old unit in the police existed, you know, it might have been dealt with, with less finesse. He probably would have realized there's something wrong with the guy and either recommended that he be sent, or it would have gone to the point where it lands on the prosecutor's table, and the prosecutor goes, oh, but this guy sounds a bit wacky. Maybe we should get him observed. Mm. Or his lawyer eventually might say, my client isn't mentally healthy. He should be observed. But you know, here we were able to pretty much take him straight to that psychiatric facility for the 30-day observation. So he didn't have to go sit. He might have spent the night in, in the local police station cells, which in Batuli is not you know, mm. anything tragic. But in another case, this guy could have ended up sitting awaiting trial for months before A, this issue was raised by someone, or B, there was a bed available if it was in, say, Johannesburg, where the Stadfontein waiting list is very long. So, And then you have a guy who really shouldn't be in a prison environment anyway, in a prison environment, yeah. and that's not good. Exactly. Another, It's another example of one of those cases, which seem to be the majority of cases that we end up discussing, which is a case that just happened to land in the right person's lap. Um, the lottery that is kind of law enforcement, whether or not this kind of lands with a cop who has some sensibility or has a deep enough knowledge to know how to deal with this particular case appropriately. Mm. Um, but I do think people like him, who's working in the Crimes Against the State unit, are probably, I mean, you could argue every cop should have some kind of insight into mental health issues because, you know, your street cops are going to come across these people on the street and this mm. guy's coming across an investigation. But I do think when you're tasked with investigating threats to senior members of the government, to foreign dignitaries, you know, all those cops should definitely be getting a case study like this presented to them, mm. a bit of more depth and insight into this kind of mental health issues and how these play out in a criminal environment that he might come across someone. You know, there I mean, are, there, there's, what's the point of great advances in your field if we are not applying these... Yep. This understanding and this increased knowledge to how we how we tackle crime now and into the yep. future. Threat assessment sounds to me does need to start to become an inherent part of what we do because so much crime there is a threat. Mm. There are threats in the build up to to some you know to something really tragic happening if anything in the domestic violence environment those detectives should be trained in threat assessment so they can understand i'm dealing with the case although it, the crimes themselves are perhaps relatively minor yeah. 
the case is actually quite serious because this is a guy on the edge of doing something that's going to be lethal. And so much of law enforcement needs to be about mental health, identifying yeah. and understanding how to deal with people who have mental health issues. And not waiting for something to become so bad that there now is a serious crime committed. Oh, and then as a cop, I step in. Exactly. What about crime prevention? And this, this is essentially crime prevention if it's done properly. Yeah, and is there anywhere in the world that is kind of getting to that, this, that is kind of tackling this kind of level of sophistication when it... I would say that probably some of the Canadian law enforcement... Oh, really? They have, you know, stalking units, for example, who understand these issues or are trained in threat assessment and realize that you need to react quickly if it's a stalking victim who's phoning the cops based on a protection order. So I would say probably the Canadians. There could be others, but I mean, I obviously haven't interacted with all of these agencies, law enforcement agencies throughout the world. Yeah, and... Um if you if you need any threat assessment done in South Africa, you can get it done. Just phone LNS Threat Management, <laughs> Gerard's company, because this is what you do: threat management, isn't it? Um, all right. Well, another great case, Gerard. Thank you very much. Um, what is your kind of what is your what is your ultimate take out from this this particular case? Um, I think, like we touched on, the threat assessment is a viable way of firstly figuring out what you're dealing with, mm. how worried you should be. But most importantly for me, threat assessment is about preventing things from getting to the point, from, from the thing we're worried about happening from actually happening because you intervene. Mm. Getting that person treatment, it's about preventing the, the worry from realizing. And that's what I like about it because it's not waiting for a crime to happen and then just trying to bring some sense of justice. But the victims already had the harm done to them. This is done in its right way is about if you pick these things up early enough you're preventing that guy from doing something bad which is good for him or her you're getting them whatever interventions they need which is good for him or her but that's also good for society it's a far more long-term solution than just getting a protection order saying don't you do that Mm. that doesn't change the person's state of mind their emotions their anxieties their fears their source of anger which sometimes might even be a justified source of anger like getting a 50,000 rand electricity bill from the city council you know that's not your real bull and you're frustrated and stressed out and your electricity's cut off and you're unemployed and, 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 you know, fixing that problem suddenly reduces that person's risk. So it's often about, yeah, helping the individual, fixing the problem if there's a genuine issue that needs to be fixed and making everybody safe and happy. How can that be a lose? Yes, but, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to be able to discuss these things hypothetically in the kind of, in a, in a, in the perfect world or the better world that we imagine. Unfortunately, so much of what we discuss indicates how far we are from having a a tangible conversation that's Mm. actually results in real change and actually fixes some of the issues that we have. Okay, Gerard, well, a good case that kind of illuminates the, uh, the concept of threat assessment, I think. You know, a guy that found himself on uh, the police's radar, but who, under evaluation, was not really a tangible threat as such, um, but certain, even despite displaying the, you know, certain threatening behaviors. Um, yeah, there's, uh, I just hope that in the future, threat assessment, you know, can become just more ingrained into mm. the into the the system of law and order that 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 surrounds us thank you very much everybody thanks, thanks.